Hey everyone, my name's Fitzgerald Pucci, and you're listening to Deconstruct. We're going to aim to answer some of the critical questions about the societal myths we are currently immersed in. We're going to follow the money trail behind each of them. We're going to dig into the historical context surrounding each myth. We do this to equip a listener with a wide scope of knowledge to look at our ingrained beliefs with fresh eyes. Let's get straight to the myth that we'll be breaking down today. Activists like Greta Thunberg are putting the climate crisis front and center in the global conversation. We experience a lot of personal guilt and fear that make climate conversations difficult. Fossil fuel companies have withheld information from the public for almost half a century, and they've spent millions of dollars, if not billions, to market themselves as trustworthy groups. Today's myth is one that's decades in the making. The myth that people like you and I are personally responsible for the climate crisis, and that our ability to fight it is limited. So let's dive right in as to why this is bogus and what we can really do to make significant change in our own spaces. In my hometown of North Brookfield this October, the leaves are changing in the same beautiful oranges and golds that fall has always brought. The rubber factory in the middle of town is one of North Brookfield's biggest employers, as well as one of its biggest polluters. Besides the factory, though, It's easy to look at the picturesque New England autumns and think that things are all right. Our exposure to pollutants and the coming dangers of the climate crisis as a predominantly white, rural town in central Massachusetts is minimal. But our conditions are not the bellwether for what the climate crisis foretells. There are communities in Massachusetts like Chelsea that are at a nexus of industrial waste. Trash incinerators, transport centers, and storage tanks for heating fuel bring a bevy of environmental health hazards for their surrounding communities. It's a beautiful community of people, organizing and acting in resilience to the toxic aspects of their environment. An estimated 20% of the community lives below the poverty line, and a significant part of the community is people of color. The brunt of the environmental damage Chelsea sustains is carried on the backs of its most vulnerable residents. The coastal nature of Chelsea's environment, its storage tanks, and polluting bodies portray a dangerous future as water levels are expected to rise. Predictions for flood maps in 2030 show tremendous environmental instability for the region. I need to remember places like Chelsea when I interact with my community and see these pretty falls. Things are not the same, and I cannot afford to get comfortable in my childhood nostalgia. I feel the need to take action. I need to do something. But the choices I feel I'm presented of reducing my waste or biking to work when I can, going vegan, They're tremendous departures from my community's lifestyle, and it's so easy to get the feeling that these changes will never be enough to individually save the planet. It's really easy to blame myself and my shortcomings, individually, when I get this feeling. Like, my individual efforts alone will never be enough to save the planet. Feelings of shame, of guilt, and disconnection can often follow those thoughts. It's a horrible burden to bear alone. But the feeling that we are alone in our actions in the climate crisis, that is a myth that's been very specifically constructed for us. 
It's holding us back, it's keeping us alone, and it's preventing us from seeing the bigger picture of the climate crisis. Today, we're going to break that myth and its shame down. We're going to get familiar with new perspectives of what people are capable of together. What I'm about to say next, I want to shout from the highest mountaintop around. So listen up. You and your actions and your life are not the cause of the climate crisis. That burden is not yours to bear. The real people responsible are doing a lot of work and spending a lot of money to make you feel like you are. But that's just not true. I talked with my friend Owen, a Sunrise coordinator for the Boston Hub, and his friends to get a little more clarity about the climate crisis. I very much have like felt the weight of the climate crisis as much as I'm able to, and I felt guilty and felt like I'm not doing enough, but I like still struggle with those feelings often sometimes. It's a scary thing when you try to measure like how much you're doing and like how much change you are a part of creating. And so it's very easy and natural, I think, to get into this place of guilt and doubt and um, negative, scared feelings that I really have the potential to take away some of your power and some of your ability to like stand up and go out there and make change. The moment I heard Owen say this, it felt like a massive burden lifted off of my shoulders. I wasn't the only one feeling paralyzed. And he was right. Those feelings I experienced absolutely slowed me down and disrupted my ability to make the change that I wanted to. Our conversation changed pace quickly, and soon we were talking about how we could shift our focus on personal sacrifices into the meaningful action I was desperately seeking. We often go out into society and do the things that like society has set up for us to do, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, like, driving your car to go visit some friends for a weekend. There's nothing wrong with, like, heating your house in winter Mm. because you need that to survive. So I don't think that, like, any average human being is responsible for climate crisis. For the climate crisis, I think that a given human being is responsible for holding the people in power accountable. And there it was, the break in my logic. The fight wasn't about packing my standard of living to near zero and swearing off of everything I considered bad for the climate. I could contribute by making action to hold powerful people accountable. Before we move on, I want to take some time to unpack some things. First, electric cars are on the roads today, but they've largely been an option reserved only for the wealthy. We haven't subsidized them enough, yet to make electric cars accessible and attainable for everyday Americans. That time will come soon. We have renewable resources on the market today. Wind, solar, and hydro energy sources are growing in the market. But the fossil fuel lobby machine is still alive and kicking. They're still getting fat subsidies for oil, gas, and coal 
and those subsidies are continuing to distort the market at the expense of renewable options. Some companies are being very deliberate about making environmentally conscious products. However, the dollar's purchasing power has stagnated since the 60s, and environmentally friendly products are still outside the means for the growing number of low-income people in America. The people making these personal actions are helping push the markets towards a more sustainable norm. To them, I say keep up the good work. In a society where we are made to feel otherwise helpless, mindful purchasing is a powerful tool to bring the fight to our economic systems. The next step in the progression of our power will be starting to practice collective action and protest in the local, state, and national levels. Let's talk for a grip about consumerism's effect on our identity. It's responsible for another big myth that I could dedicate an entire episode to. The idea that we are what we buy. The breakdown goes like this. Consumerism seeks to quietly replace the contents of our hearts with our purchasing habits and seeks to replace the action of self-expression with the action of buying. My friend Haley recently made an excellent point. Climate awareness threatens the routine purchasing patterns that consumerism depends on. It's like a virus. Consumerism infects our thoughts and institutions. It corrupts all that it touches and spreads contagiously. It is capable of recognizing threats as well, and has responded to the threat of our climate action by injecting itself into the climate movement, as any good virus does. It's trying to co-opt climate action and replace it with its usual trick, replacing our actions with eco-friendly purchasing habits that maintain its bottom line and keeps control over us. If we can recognize this and dial up our action and protest, we'll be able to keep consumerism on the ropes and advance our actions. A great way that we can take action is by utilizing a deep source of power already accessible to us. Owen describes it beautifully. Like personal acts of like not eating meat or like mm -hmm. riding your bike in a car or like these personal actions versus the larger political actions. Yeah. Uh, government mm -hmm. how government institutions that we have yeah. over. Yeah. And on an individual level, we don't have enough power to reverse climate change. Um, yeah. The government doesn't have that power. So I think that mm. the place that personal actions fit in is holding that government accountable to using the power that they do have to address this crisis. So I think it is about personal action, but it's not about personal action to stop climate change. It is about personal action to hold the people who can stop climate change accountable. The idea that that personal work can still be things like calling representatives or attending meetings or pressuring. Uh, I, I, I never associated that as the kind of work that I was capable of doing. And I love how you put that into the context of this is still the personal work. It's really making me look at it with a fresh pair of eyes. 
<laughs> and also, you're completely right. The U.S. government does have the power to do that, and we have the power to make the U.S. government do that. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Like, come on. That's amazing to remember. That is amazing to remember. It felt so good to realize how much power we actually had. That we had more options than simply depriving ourselves of things. That we did belong to one of the most powerful governmental bodies in the world. And that we had the ability to utilize that government for the sake of attaining climate justice. For Owen to reframe my responsibility personally, to take that power that already exists and to shape it was a complete answer to so many of the qualms that made me feel so alone beforehand. It was awesome. Not only is it deeply fulfilling to make podcasts that bring new perspectives on society to folks, with Anchor, it's incredibly simple. It's a free podcast host with tons of creation tools that help make cut and polished podcasts straight from your phone or computer. Anchor makes podcasting simple. They distribute your work to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other major platform distributors. They come with a built-in advertising system so you can make money without a minimum listenership. It's got everything you need to make a fantastic podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. People will still continue to find comfort in their individual actions and routines. Owen's fellow Sunrise member and friend, Nina, gave solid context as to why individuality will still feel comfortable to many. I think for a lot of people, the personal choice actually feels like the easier choice mm-hmm. because it's something you can do that's a small thing that feels like it's making a difference. Yeah. And it's very understandable with a crisis. Yeah. You'd want to be able to make these small changes feel effective because it's feel a little less panicked or a little less hopeless about it and I think that's a good reason to do those things and so you can feel more like something's happening but I think for someone people do that feel like that alone is going to do something Mm. and I think for a lot of people taking political action or movement feels really scary or people don't know how to do that or one of the things we need to do is make sure people understand that everyone is the right person Now that we've all done some work to peel back the layers of our own inherited mentalities, I want to take a deep dive into the myths and misinformation these fossil fuel companies are pushing. Let's take a moment right now to get started with it. Folks, myths are a couple of things. They propel the thoughts and beliefs of entire societies. They're often rooted in historical events and as memory fades in time, they distort. When they're first created, they're often incredibly profitable for the few people that benefit from them at the expense of the vast majority of others. They preoccupy human thought with beliefs that don't serve us. I'll give you an example. Last week, The Guardian published a new report exposing brand new information. 
there are 20 companies responsible for 35% of the entire world's CO2 emissions. Familiar names like Chevron, ExxonMobil, BP, and Shell dot the list, as well as several massive companies I didn't know existed. National Iranian Oil, Saudi Aramco, Pemex, and Gazprom. Half of these names sound like what would happen if the Keebler elves dropped the cookie business and went straight into arms stealing. But they're real, and they've contributed to more than 480 billion tons of carbon dioxide released in the 50-year span between 1965 and 2015. Complete with the report, a supplementary article was released showing a detailed timeline of the numerous scientific warnings that fossil fuel companies ignored, denied, and actively spread misinformation against. A 1965 report from the President's Science Advisory Committee stated that pollutants had already worsened air and water quality on a global scale, posing significant threats to humankind. In 1981, an Exxon memo stated that it is distinctly possible that the CO2 emissions from the company's coming endeavors would later produce effects that would indeed be catastrophic for the substantial part of the Earth's population. 20 years later, at the turn of the millennium, Exxon took out an ad in the New York Times that minimized and invalidated the scientific results their own researchers had known of for decades. The fossil fuel companies have done significant work to undermine the damage they've done. A report from earlier in 2019 found the stock market's top five fossil fuel companies spent nearly $200 million annually on lobbyists to delay, control, or block policies that aimed to tackle the climate crisis. The same top five companies spent virtually the same amount of money per year, another $197 million on climate-focused brand campaigns to make them look like they were the good guys. Check it out. BP invests more in America than in any other country. In fact, over the last five years, no other energy company has invested more in the U.S. than BP. We're working to fuel America for generations to come. Today, our commitment to the Gulf and to America has never been stronger. Give me a break. Their commitment is to their profit margins and their profit margins alone. It's bogus, it's expensive, and it's treacherous. These companies have so much money to make by bankrolling politicians into shooting down responsible climate policy. They have so much to keep by coercing the public to think of them as saints. Our legislative system is constantly being influenced by big-dollar lobbyists. Marketing campaigns are tirelessly working to crystallize the idea that companies like BP and Exxon and all the others are more deserving of our trust than ourselves. Billions of dollars of profit depend on these myths' continued success. They've gotten away with burying this information from the public for years. And I refuse to let them get away with that. And it's not coming from the everyday people like you and me. Richard Heed, an analyst for the Climate Accountability Institute, created the timeline and extraction estimates. In an interview, Heed stated that these companies and their products are substantially responsible for the climate emergency, have collectively delayed national and global action for decades, 
and can no longer hide behind the smokescreen that consumers are the responsible parties. As to what society can do next, Heed gave a pithy answer. However much we care about our personal consumption, what really matters is political action to rein in on the oil, gas, and coal companies. So let's take a moment to recognize together that these feelings of guilt and shame are manufactured for us to inhibit our movement, disrupt our flow, and to divert our attention from the big businesses responsible for this. If we can let go of our personal mental disquiet and recognize the real perpetrators of the climate catastrophe, we can free ourselves of the blame and guilt that paralyze so many people. Let's come together with our loved ones and form groups that put our collective dreams to practice. Alright y'all, let's take a wrap up. I hope you're feeling better about yourselves and your everyday lives. I hope that you feel a little bit more familiar with your own personal power. And I certainly hope that you feel like you can more clearly see the bigger picture and the players behind the climate crisis. All right, y'all, that's going to be it for today's show. I am so grateful that you made it all the way through this episode of Deconstruct, and I can't wait to bring you the content we're going to be running with next. Next time, we'll be taking a look at the legwork that powerful climate organizations in Massachusetts are doing right now. I can't wait to share it with you. Until then, I appreciate you. Stay you, keep your love alive, and take care. I'll see you soon, okay? I'm Fitzgerald Pucci, and you've been listening to Deconstruct. Deconstruct.